have you had a toaster waffle recently? <laughs> Not terribly recently, but uh, two things. One, define recently. And two, I have to tell you about what I discovered I can get delivered to my house very quickly and very affordably. And that is a Belgian waffle with a cup of ice cream and also a Shirley Temple. I know that is irrelevant to the story you're about to tell me, but I need it's someone else to understand. It's not irrelevant. It's still about waffles. <laughs> <laughs> it's dangerous. This is all from one place? They're yes. doing Shirley Temples and ice cream and waffles? Yeah, and like a bunch of other things. But That sounds nice. Yeah. It's great. That sounds really nice. It's so delicious. And you get also, just a little square of a waffle. That's all I need. You're not going to get any judgment from me because I have a place that I love in LA where I can get a gluten-free churro stuffed with Oreo. <gasps> okay, well, when I come out, we're going there as well. Yeah, I got you, fam. I would have taken you last time if I'd known about it at the time, to be fair. Yes. Okay, so the other night for dinner, I had toaster waffles, mm -hmm. gluten-free, mm -hmm. with little blueberries in it. And listen, you can only do the blueberries in the toaster waffles because the blueberries are like shriveled and like oh, yeah. sad dried and dried. And, yeah. it's, if you put a whole fat chonky cute little blueberry i'm not i will pick around it but it was so good mm -hmm. they're so good it's unfair and the instantaneousness factors into the overall goodness like the fact that i was like i'm hungry yesterday i need food right now I'm putting it in the toaster. It's popping out. I put my real maple syrup, which oh. is incongruous to the idea of a toaster waffle. No, but it's nevertheless. Perfect. It's the dream combination. And you just eat it like a little like, snack food. You, you, you don't use a fork and a knife. It's a toaster waffle. Oh, yeah. You can go full on hands with that. Although, depending on how much syrup you put on, you might need a fork and a knife. No, you dip it. Ooh. Guys, she's smart and sexy. This is incredible. Thank you. Thank you for saying I'm sexy. <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry. There are, are children listening. Thank you for saying that I'm sexy. <laughs> oh, that, that got me good. <laughs> I had a real mommy. Sorry. <laughs> Energy. Oh, and if that's not what this show is, I don't want to listen to it. It's not not what this show no, is. We're 102 episodes in. Yeah, we are, baby. It's so funny. For so long, you and I have not talked about the episode count. We haven't paid attention to it. We've not cared, or at least we've pretended that we don't care. But now that we're in, we get to say 100 every yes. time. It's triple digits if it hits different. It does. I feel... I feel like... Harley Quinn when she goes from the stupid little outfit to the hot girl outfit. <laughs> okay, so we're going from Suicide Squad to Birds of Prey. Yeah, it's, thank you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I got you. Thank you. Because <laughs> Harley Quinn was great before, you know? Like, yeah. we, we always loved her. But now, now she's on episode 102, triple digit. <laughs> <laughs> now she's got the female gaze, and that's a whole new level. We do bring the female gaze. Hi, I'm Rowan Hall. Hi, I'm Tracy Harrison. And this is Willing and Fable, the podcast that brings you 102 episodes of the female gaze and original retellings and in-depth research on the history, mystery, and mythology that makes the world so fascinating. Each week, we research a topic from history or mythology, and then we write an original story to go along with that topic. So, dear listener, if you'd like to support the show... 
think about checking out our merch. We've got some great designs, including Ooh. ones that say F Zeus. <laughs> I can't even <laughs> say it on the show. <laughs> F Zeus, but don't F Zeus. But on the shirt, it's bleeped out with a little lightning bolt. Amazing. It's so good. It's so it's so good. Thank you, Jamie, for designing one of my favorite designs. Fly Robot Fly, everywhere on the internet. Our amazing designer of our merch, our logo, everything I think you've ever seen that mm-hmm. we've ever made that's visual. <laughs> oh, wait, that's not true. That's not true. It's either you or Jamie. I've done some fun uh, fan arts and stuff, but for our really well-designed merch... It's all flow. Fly, robot, fly. Or, Tracy. Or you can support the show by going up to your best friend in the whole world and giving them a quick little platonic kiss on the mouth or the cheek because we don't do that enough as people in this world. And I want to bring that back. Right? Right? You can tell when someone's never been to Europe. Oh, if they get freaked out by the like, mwah, mwah, side, side thing. Yeah, the mwah, mwah, mwah. Mm Hmm. Mm-hmm. Making kissing sounds. The podcast. <laughs> Fastest way to lose audience members. Just mouth sounds the podcast. I'm sorry. But, you know, if you were here, dear listener, I would give you three little smooches on your cheeks. You, that's how you say hello. That's how you say goodbye in Willing and Fable. Yes, I'd be right behind her in line. That's right. I would line up just to give you a little kiss on the mouth and the cheek. Little smooches. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We are losing our ever-loving minds. Always. Hello. All right, Tracy, what are we doing? Why are we doing it? What's going on? So we are doing another set of storytime episodes where we look back in the history of our podcast and pull some of our favorite stories that have to do with a theme. And I'm going to let Rowan describe the theme for this episode. Yeah. So the way I think about these episodes is like... If your friend made you a mixtape, only you're both writing nerds and the mixtape is stories, not cool music. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I love that. And so when it was my turn to do a mixtape of my own writing, I thought to myself, what is the most pretentious mixtape I could possibly do? (laughs) (laughs) That was your your criteria. What is the most pretentious mixtape I can make? No, no, it wasn't really. I... I just really like this topic, and I realized I had enough episodes to do a a thing of it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I wanted to do a collection of some of my writing all centered around the theme of the muse. Yes. You all know I love a muse. It's it's since so early in this show's existence, it has been apparent. It has been a theme that I continue to revisit. And so I thought I'd... I do it as my mashup this time because now you can compare a couple of them all at once. Yeah. Okay. So what's our first one? So the first one is my OG girl from episode seven, Gods versus Mortals, the Leonan Shi or the Leonan Shi. She is Yates' fairy muse that comes and gives inspiration to artists and then takes their life. <laughs> Amazing. It doesn't get better than that. It's so good. Uh, so we're going all the way back to episode seven. And when we tell people to start our podcast, we specifically say, do not start that far back. We do. It's the first episode is just a little bit of us talking about, hey, you don't need to be a completionist. It's okay. 
can start later. We've just come so far. Right. It's it's we want to celebrate the work we're doing now and so it's it's always interesting to dive back to the work we did in the beginning. It is though it is the plight of the artist to do the like no don't perceive the work I used to make. No yeah. no. Uh, but that's not how podcasts work. And so actually, I do want you to perceive the work that I we used to make. Let's jump into it. I read. I've been reading. I'm desperately reading because I cannot do anything else. Armed with paintbrushes of all shapes, canvases in every size, pigment of every tangible color on earth... And a few that certainly should not exist. I sit in self-imposed isolation, unable to create a single thing. And what beautifully romantic hypocrisy. The tortured artist cheered on by a chorus of unrealized art in a room furnished and body-fed by money derived from every source but that art. I am fraudulent in name, ideology, morality, reality. Dressing the part of a successful artist, a painter of my time, time-worn by lack of success and hatred for those who have it. I rot my own soul for want of emotion to manufacture artistic vision. It gives me nothing. Still life of lemons, which lacks zest. Portrait of nude reclining with no proper form. Stormy summer coast with neither heat nor tumult. Every brushstroke pierces me with an imagined inadequacy until I practice so little that it becomes true inadequacy. So I read the great tortured souls that came before me. Keats, Plath, Van Gogh, Hemingway, Cobain, and W.B. Yeats. I sit by my window, worn chair and $2 used book, glaring at the world through the unclean apartment glass. He writes, This spirit seeks the love of men. If they refuse, she is their slave. If they consent, they are hers, and can only escape by finding one to take their place. Her lovers waste away, for she lives on their life. Most of the Gaelic poets, down to quite recent times, have had a Lianxi, for she gives inspiration to her slaves and is indeed the Gaelic muse, this malignant fairy. Her lovers, the Gaelic poets, died young. She grew restless and carried them away to other worlds, for death does not destroy her power. The idea rings in my head like a bell, a siren warning me away or an alarm waking me up. It's so appealing, this creature of vampiric, sensual, more than human. Beautifully stunning, every artist into feverish subjugation to both art and... Hmm. I go immediately to the nearest canvas, squeezing a mass 
of the nearest pigment, a soft umber that begun separating from disuse, and hold a narrow brush to the white weave. The frame stares at me in mockery. No creation springs from my hand. The education for which I paid dearly will not couch my lack of will. And so it goes on like this for weeks. Longer, I think. The bills, the commute, the gas I need to get, the packages I need to ship, the messages I need to send pull me at an imperceptibly slow expansion away from the work I'd set out to do. Until maybe a year has passed. The canvases are just as empty and my goals just as far-reaching when I sit again in my chair by the window and read Yeats. Most of the Gaelic poets, down to quite recent times, have had a Leon Shi, for she gives inspiration. She gives them inspiration. I am wine-drunk by the time I bound from my chair, having read the phrase through to twilight. My subsequent actions are based on years of games and fantasy paint. Vibrant crimson and a massive brush to scour out a pentagram, a pentacle. I can't remember what it ought to be called, and in fact have very little knowledge of its meaning, let alone its use for my ends. And I have ends. To call forth succubus fay, entrap her, and demand, demand inspiration for my potential works, waiting and left undone, the rules. As long as I refuse her, she cannot refuse me. Wine in a coffee mug and a few stale Girl Scout cookies held as an offering. I, I think I read that you need those for rituals, at least for Santa Claus. I, I stand in the center of my massive circle, the paint seeping into the laminate floor, and upon seeing my own footprint near the southmost edge, I begin to question my actions. But what is a tortured artist without a bit of a mess? I console myself. Standing in the midst of my offering in silence, my own embarrassment presses against me. I whisper as quietly and sacredly as I can sort through wine-numbed lips. Lenanshi. Nothing. Not a dust mote in the air moves at my utterance. Turning in a circle, I try again. I call you, Lenan Shi. I call you to make me a great artist. I groan then at my own childishness. Magic, succubi, artist. <laughs> but when I turn back to the window, she is there. Enrobed in nothing but silvery window light, she lounges in my chair, smirking darkened lips and wrapping raven-black coils around her long fingers. Her teeth gleam, moonbeams of impossible sharpness, breasts of impossible fullness, form of maddening perfection. The woman's two large eyes blink at me leisurely, and her voice is husky. What are you doing? 
I feel myself shrink under her scrutiny. Everything feels so instantly foolish, and I scramble to put words into sentences. I, I was calling you. Were you now? She rises from the chair, flowing like the storm clouds to her full height. Don't s stay where you are. I try to command her like a dog as she strides toward the circle, which surely must protect me. I, I read that somewhere or saw it once, but she's not interested in my voice. I wonder if it even sounds like more than an insect's buzz as she ripples forward. At the edge of my messily painted star, she stops, blinks at me grinning, and reaches out slowly, so slowly, to pluck a shortbread cookie from the plate in my one hand. She wrinkles her wide, perfect button nose at the taste and pulls the coffee mug of wine from my other hand. She sips as she surveys the room. Come out of that mess, you look foolish. I do. Just like that, no particular commanding in her voice, just the truth in progress. She spoke, and so I will fulfill her telling into reality. You call yourself artist, she croons. I do. I see no art here. I do. Now I know I'm fawning over her, nearly whimpering like a puppy. She laughs like a chorus of bells at dawn. All right, mortal, then we will make a deal. I will make you a famous artist. Successful even in your lifetime, you lucky thing. I will live with you as your muse and infuse divinity into your every stroke. And then, when you are at your absolute peak, creating with such enchantment the world turns its eyes on you, then you will come away with me to the other world, where you will know me forever. I can feel it. This is the moment that I must say no. I must refuse her to keep her by my side, indebted to me. But how could I? And what if that refusal kept her here, sure, but still left me without the will to paint, to be constantly inspired yet lack the motivation to turn she, glorious she, into a manifesto of what beauty truly is? I cannot refuse her, and she knows. Like a predator, I see her eyes flash in excitement and hunger. So I love her all the more. Her plans for my demise snake between her very eyelashes and make me want to look on her forever. How will you, I stammer, thinking of death, It is not for the artist to understand the muse. What ritual have you not performed to call forth my power? 
And yet you fail at every turn. Your drink, your distraction, none of it calls to me but your life. I demand your life for your art, and you should be so lucky. I give it freely. Hour after hour of my very life force spent on toiling. I agree to her contract, and so begin to worship at my own altar, call myself the god artist, and pay penance to the greater goddess muse. Lenan she, who bathes me in time and cleverness, knowledge, stamina, and relevance. I give it all up to kiss her and so kiss the canvas. Friendships, family, food, all of it feels like such a small sacrifice at first. A balance easily struck and a payment equal to the reward. There are times that I must work and times that I may not. But it all amounts to the goal. She promised success in my lifetime. My Lenon she sits immobile for hours as I paint her. She whispers in my ears, softly crooning through my sweat and fatigue, You will be great. This work will be great, and if it's not, better for us. We'll laugh at the lesson and paint it over and start again. We'll never stop, you and I. My time with her is rapturous. I am able to pay my bills with my artwork. My work is hung in famous galleries, sold for vast sums at high auctions. People even recognize me on the street after a few articles appear in newspapers and magazines. I am getting thin. I am always tired. I am obsessively focused on creation and will often find that I've gone days without even eating. I can't remember the time water has last passed my lips. I don't know if I sleep or wake. Lenon she only grows. She is more divine, more golden, more charming and vibrant with each passing moment that I fade to gray. I trade my color for hers. Of course, I know. How could I not that I am feeding my muse every ounce of myself? But how could I resist? The day she comes to end my life, I know why it is marked. I've recently sold a three-piece collection to a museum for a shocking sum. The whole situation shocks me. Over the last days, I've received calls for private commissions, interviews, appearances. It's never-ending. Except that it is. There could not possibly be another divine stroke of the brush within my wasted form. I have given away Every moment of a long and leisurely life, comfortable years of inadequacy and wanting, maybe even happiness. 
for a fast flash of brilliance and maybe remembrance when I'm gone. She knows, and I know, and I cannot regret it. I stand in the middle of that same simple studio from which I called her. (laughs) We agreed never to give it up, despite the wealth. That self-same altar to my own potential written in crimson desperation. Lenanshi looks at me with smiling brilliance. Here it began, and here it will end. So if there's one thing that I think about when I consider the Linan Shi, it is wine and Girl Scout cookies, and that is solely because of you and this story. It's such a good combo. It's such a good combo, and it's so real. It's so clever to take what should be this highbrow, I'm going to give you an offering, and it's just what you have around you, and turning that into wine and Girl Scout cookies. So, I mean, everyone knows that I'm a spooky girl, so I, when I do witchy things, it is always just with stuff that I have around. Mm-hmm. I am consistently cutting open tea bags for herbs because I didn't go out to the store to buy the <laughs> herbs you're supposed to quote unquote use for yeah. spooky things. Um, so the Girl Scout cookies thing really resonated with me. <laughs> I just, I love a tortured artist in these short stories in a way that I do not love them in life. <laughs> I particularly found your description of artist block and that that's being stuck on creativity really impactful in the storytelling because you can feel the soul-crushing frustration of wanting to create and feeling like there is something between you and that execution. Do you feel that way ever? Often. Yeah, absolutely. Do you have a system for getting over writer's block? Because I don't. I just write. Like, I have just made it so that I either have to write or I have to write. Like, there's no... Absolutely. I have... I do that. I'll push through for writing. And that comes from doing it so consistently and having a deadline. Deadlines. A deadline. But with art, digital art, I will get into such ruts where all I want to do is create art and I have no inspiration or idea for what I want to do or how to change it or how to make it exciting or how to find a new technique and then I won't do it. And then you get stuck and you still want to do it, but you can't do it. Oh, that's interesting. I hadn't considered the mediums that are not my work. Mm -hmm. That is to say mediums that are my hobbies because I do feel also with digital art, I find myself shying away from it when I don't feel creative, but I also don't feel as much shame about that because it's it's for me anyway. Mm-hmm. And this I consider to be work, good work, enjoyable work, mm-hmm. but work nonetheless. I think that because I consider this work, I don't have the luxury of sinking into a creative block. And so you just push through it. And it might not be your favorite thing, but you push through and you come up with something where when it is a hobby, what's making me push through it? And coming up with something that maybe it wasn't my favorite thing. Nothing? Okay, I'll just put it down. I have found that if I am 
not inspired and I start writing, it'll be about a third to two thirds of the way through the writing that I figure it out. And then I have to finish the story that is not necessarily what I already wrote and then go back mm. and, and either rewrite or fix the beginning so that it aligns with the story that I found. You know, I would say that I've noticed that in um, the story we're writing together. That's a process that we have both fallen into together of consistently checking into what the story is and what we want it to be and where it's going and not worrying about where it was impacting where we've found it needs to go. Yeah, we do talk about that a lot because revising is just such a, a time suck. You can't revise a thing that doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. And so if you're constantly revising your past work, you just never get to the future work. Absolutely. At some point. At some point, you have to put it down, the red pen. So, yeah, I, my muse. Okay, so this was my first my first exploration of the muse, episode seven. Yep. We hadn't even gotten to double digits yet. <laughs> we were just wee little babies. Little babies. And I wanted to put it back to back with episode 98, which is my episode on absinthe. And you can see that these two characters exist in the same space, I think, mm -hmm. and are maybe even the same character, potentially. But the difference in my storytelling between episode 7 and episode 98 uh, is... Uh, I don't, I don't know if it's particularly profound or if it's, it's that different. But again, we talked about this in the last episode. The process is different for me. It's not, I don't know if the result is that different. What would you say are the big differences in the process? What makes it stand out to you that it's changed so much? I have a much clearer understanding of the tools that I have at my disposal, so on one hand, I know the kinds of sentences I'm fairly good at crafting. Mm -hmm. I know the types of places I'm good at going and the ideas I'm pretty good at exploring. The double-edged sword of that is reminding myself I can't always go there uh, or do that or pull out those tricks. But I feel like when you have a toolbox that you can always reach into, you are invited to go further than you would if you felt like you were just figuring it all out. <laughs> right. Okay. So the idea that you know that you have a solid foundation to stand on, which makes you feel safer branching out into other ways of storytelling. Yeah. There's also something to be said for body of work. We have written enough, enough that, you know, first of all, if our show and our writing isn't for someone, then it's not for them. That's fine. We mm -hmm. might not be everyone's cup of tea. But also within people who do listen, from one story to the next, they might not like one and they might love the next. They might feel ambivalent. It, there's so many different stories, so many different ways you can feel about them. And by episode 98, I have given myself the freedom to not write for someone liking it because who is that like you can't make this mythical listener and then try to write for them because that person doesn't exist yeah that's such a good point that one of the biggest learning lessons in the time we've done this podcast is learning to write for ourselves and for what brings us joy and what brings us satisfaction it's why we've branched off in different styles where i love getting to sink into poetry and getting to really explore that, which is something I didn't do a ton early on because I thought I had to write stories and I had to rewrite myths. And then 
changing what that looks like into getting to change perspectives and mediums is is because we have become comfortable enough to write for ourselves. And we also are very lucky to have a community that trusts us, which I don't take lightly, uh, and also th- by that same token that we are able to trust. Yeah. I trust people's assessment of my work to be in good faith. That's a really good point. Yeah, so when people have notes, I'm so interested. And because it's, you know, it's like when you walk into a writer's group and you're like, are you guys, are we all here for each other's benefit? Are you going to try to make me feel bad? Yeah. Are you here to show that you're the best or are you here to help everyone grow? Mm Mm-hmm. And I've been in both. Uh, But I feel almost as if this is now a writer's group that we have such a a strong community of very kind, thoughtful, intelligent people. Yes. That when people pass along notes, I'm excited. Oh, yes. Not everyone has the privilege of people engaging with their work, much less engaging with their work and then talking to them about it. We are so fortunate to have the types of listeners that we do, because not every podcast has a highly engaged audience. They might have a lot of listeners, but podcast isn't necessarily a medium you think of where you're talking to the creators a ton. And Mm -hmm. we do get to communicate with our audience across various platforms, whether it be our Discord, where it's our patrons, or on Instagram, or on TikTok. And because we are not just an educational podcast, and we're not just a chit-chat podcast, and we're not just a story podcast, we're all three combined it creates a really unique and fun way to interact with our audience. Yeah, there is that thing in podcasts where you feel like you're sitting down with your friends. And I have had podcasts get me through some sad times that way. You know, you just want happy voices Mm -hmm. around. But it is very rare for the podcasters to then have interactions with their listeners where it's like oh no we're cut from the same cloth i see you Mm -hmm. Uh, and so when people reach out and talk to us it it does give me that sense that the world is filled with more good people than i had previously estimated (laughs) i love that interpretation of it yeah so uh i hope you enjoy this comparison this is from episode 98 my writing on absence Paris at night looks like a thousand glittering dreams pinned to the sky. They call it the City of Light. Well, of course they do. They must. Tell the world of our majesty, our Babylon. But this is not a story of light. It is a tale of what happens in the darkness. When a young man comes to Paris, the first thing he must do before taking a single breath of air is devour a glass of absinthe. This must be offered from the hand of another, such as himself. This is important. It sets the stage, tells the audience what play they've entered. The audience being the body and mind, of course. Get started on the right foot. Let immoral drunkenness be the guide of the great poets and painters. We shall leave sobriety for the lesser men. Aubert did not have the sound advice I'm giving you, so he came like a lamb to the slaughter. Look around you at the men 
So many crowded together around the fountains, laughing and carrying on, they huddle like moths to the flame and beat back the darkness of night with company. But look around again. Do you see the lonely men, the ones on the fringes sitting quietly, languidly, blinking into the darkness? Those are the artists, very likely, or they believe they are. But they are also prey. Do not dine alone if you can help it, and if you cannot, stay always within the light's cast. Imagine, if you will, at that empty table, a tall young man, all elbows, eyes like saucers, and hands grasping for everything that comes near, eager, hair like mine, freckles like these. He was new, uninitiated and alone, and began his foray into society by crawling into the cafes. It was the right choice, mind you. Simply done the wrong way. Aubert fell into his cup quickly each night. The young country boys never have the tolerance that we do, of course. But even the cheap drunks discover absinthe. The green fairy. There is a ritual for inspiration passed among Parisian artists. The preparation. Spirit. Sugar. Water. Longing. A communion to call the muse forth from the dark recesses of your mind, the alleys, bringing with her a sparkling inspiration. She is a bomb to the boredom born of fear. So, Aubert drinks and paints. He lives in a small studio shared with another. It's cold in the winter, drafty, as those places always are. Fuel costs money, food costs money, paint costs money, so he compromises, as we all do. I need paint and inspiration to live. We leave the rest to the mortal men. But it is hard to paint hungry and wanting and lonely and cold. So he begins to perform the ritual. At first, the lights are too bright, the space is too crowded. At first, the mixture is wrong and the intoxication too swift. But he learns... We all learn. She appears to him for the first time in a cafe about to close. He is the last man slumped in his seat. He would whine for his mother if he possessed the energy. She appears behind him, arms around his shoulders, in the way that the world appears when one wakes up from an all-consuming sleep. She did not exist, and then she does. The green fairy is quick to kiss, caress, but it is nice to wake up to kisses, I think, don't you? Hello, painter, what is your name? He looks up at her, eager to ask the same question, but asking was for hours past and he is too tired and too drunk. The lights behind her haze into sparkles and her green eyes pull him in like winding ivy. Give me your name, she says. What? He is a blur to himself, the world moving just too quickly to catch. Give me your name, handsome. She nearly purrs, running slim, cool fingers across his hot brow. If you give me your name, I will inspire you, he does. Without a second thought, no moment of hesitation or wondering, only spirit sugar, water, and longing. 
He paints like he has never painted before. The form's perfection, expression clear, colors rich, light enchanting. He paints so well that people actually want to look at his canvases, and not only to look, critique, discuss, envy. The inspiration is as rich and heady as the absinthe from which it was born, but it is also just as bitter. The magic only lasts so long, he learns. Like sugar, it dissolves itself into the light of morning. And with inspiration comes some success, and so more is needed to fuel the machine that God he hopes he can maintain. So, he turns to absinthe again. Among the throngs, among the laughter, she does not appear. Never. Though she could, she ought to. She'd have the eyes of every desperate man while they tried crafting lines of poetry around her like a rope. But she is a clever thing, and only comes to men who are alone. So, Aubert spends his nights sulking in café corners, dripping away in misery and hunger the pounding headache that bows his head a new constant. She comes. She always does. The green fairy waits until Aubert has cried for her, dried his tears and cried again, until he is a sniveling, groveling thing loosened with liquor and poured out into the street. The ritual is as impoverished as the practitioner. Cheap spirit, sweet words, bitter tears, and agony. <sighs> Aubert Fouet Moreau, she shimmers. My love, he sloshes. She giggles and pulls him to her with lithe arms. Please, please, I am lost. I do not know what to paint. It is flat. I am lonely, my love. Inspire me, please. Aubert Fouet Moreau. He likes the way her mouth moves around his name. Give me some of your sanity, and I will inspire you. So he does. And then he does again, and again. He gives, and he gives, until he is a drunk, a wretch, a madman. There is a violence born of shattered sanity. He forgets his name, truly he does. Aubert could not speak it, if anyone asked. No matter. No one asks for the name of a man in the gutter. He calls to her again, unable to perform the ritual. It slips further out of reach each time. No absinthe now, no sweetness, no dilution. Aubert Fouet Moreau, you call with nothing to give me, my love. Her fairy wings flutter out behind her, curving like a cat stretching in the sun. He begs for her to restore him. His words are loose, attached only tenuously with a new terror. He begs for his life, his art, his name. He has sold too much for too little. My love. She crouches down and leans close to him, her diaphanous gown as delicate as petals, her skin summer warm on his winter cold. Bring me another man. Another name, and I will give you yours back.
She kisses him, like that very first sip. What? Don't laugh. This is serious stuff. It sounds like children's tales, but I tell you now so you will know the truth. The green fairy is real, no postered angel. I'm doing you a favor. Someone needs to save you from yourself. Or, perhaps I've hung the forbidden fruit from the lowest bough. I see. You're interested. And now you will be led by your own foolishness right into the grasp of the green fairy. <sighs> Before I begin again, would you like another drink? Sorry, I didn't catch your name. So, what is clear to me in this episode of Muses is that no one will ever write enigmatic, ethereal women the way that you do. Each one is unique in what she brings to the story and how she interacts with the characters, but I find it incredibly captivating every single time. Thank you. You're yeah. the best. Thank you. I have learned in talking to friends about the idea of the muse that there is an understanding of the muse where a, a person, usually a woman, a very beautiful woman, mm -hmm. classically, provides inspiration at her own expense or she is not appreciated as much for the work that she does. It's not viewed as work. Oh, absolutely. It, I think of the trope sexy lamp. She could be replaced with a sexy lamp and still be as inspirational in a lot of the ways we talk about muses. I think about that a lot as like the kind of Picasso muse. You know, he went through wives, he went through women. The way that he talked about women was not gracious yeah. all of the time. There's a lot of stories about how he wasn't very kind. That's kind of the one version of the muse that I think of. But when I think about muses, because of, I think because of growing up with my parents, I think of muses as being participants. Mm -hmm. And I think two artists can be muses for one another. It's, it is someone who fuels your creativity. And that person can also have their own creative endeavors. And that fuel can be perhaps as limitless as love. Like there is no well to mm. draw from, therefore it cannot run out. Yeah, that's a great way to think of it. So it is funny now looking back and seeing the way that I really love to write about a destructive muse because my in my daily practice, I think of a fair number of people in my life having been or are being muses. And I hope that it's not <laughs> as destructive <laughs> as falling to shambles and in drink and selling your soul and all that. But what I love about this story is it explores that romantic idea of the Green Fairy of she's going to give you so much and bring you all of these great ideas, but she's going to destroy you along the way. And then you get to be this long suffering artist. Like that is a different type of muse than the reality of what we are talking about of the people who inspire you. And I love that for this character. And it's a different type of destruction than Lenan Shi, which is very intentional. I am taking from you. I think of the green fairy as 
maybe not everyone would fall to destruction around the Green Fairy the way that she's been written here, but mm. there is a a part of the seduction of her is the destruction of, of you. This episode and also the episode that I did on Moonshine, which happened kind of in conjunction with one another, are both also stories about addiction, which I wanted to explore because we're covering alcohol. Right. Alcohol that is seen as being especially destructive. And people love to link addiction with artistry, that toxic artist. Mm-hmm. So I feel like that was, in my mind, inextricable from the theme. And there is the habit of making self-destruction seem glamorous in addiction and in art. Absolutely in art. Um, I-, I can think of so many examples of glamorizing something that in reality feels awful. And there's something comforting about that too. You know, I know when I'm in my darkest places, I I have this urge to create art that reflects that feeling, but you want it to be consumable and understandable. And so there is uh, sometimes a fun idea of how do I make it beautiful, but then you're glamorizing something that doesn't feel beautiful. and, And I could talk about it forever. Yeah, and I also want to go on record Describing something that is devastating or sad or horrific or frightening as beautiful, making it seem beautiful, is not inherently glamorizing a behavior. And I think the internet loves to take it that way. Something can be both devastating and beautiful. It happens. The world is filled with horrific things that are also good looking or beautiful sounding or, you know, what have you. We talk about it all the time. There's things are allowed to have and. In them, things can be yes destructive or awful or sad and beautiful, incredible, awe-inspiring, and and making space in your life for the word and and allowing things to just be existing in a dichotomy is really healthy and really important. I'm going to use that as my mm-hmm. jumping-off point for my next story. I am presenting for your enjoyment. Uh, The Unknown Woman of the Sen, part one. This is episode 93. I did a two-part series and did two different stories on The Unknown Woman of the Sen, who has been a muse within my family for years. And I will say nothing more. (laughs) Okay, let's jump into it. It's a dreary, wet night when they bring her in. There's nothing noteworthy about it. The night always seems filled with rain, or it's just rained, or the streets could really use a good rain. You hardly notice anymore amongst the constant dampness. Drip. 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 One man on the stretcher comments on how eerie it is coming into the morgue at night. He must be new. No one who comes by often, especially during the private hours, would say anything so absurd. That would be asking for one of the boys to give them a real scare. You think, next time the newcomer turns a corner empty-handed, you'll toss a body into him. You peer around at the slabs. There's an old woman in a particular state of deepening decay. They'll retire her tomorrow, maybe. If you can be quick about it, you could catch him on his way out. One push and he'll be forced to embrace the hag in a macabre waltz. She'll squelch into him like a too-ripe tomato. You put the idea aside. Between the two men, slumped into the stiffness of the stretcher, is a young woman. 
Perfect, you think. A crowd will come for this one. They go to lay her out on a free slab, but you stop them. The new man is confused, but the other one knows the score. He helps you to move some bearded fellow's body off to the side so that this woman may recline front and center for the crowd's view. If you weren't shuffling under the weight of a decaying corpse, you'd have a spring in your step. When the doctor comes in the morning, he'll be so pleased. You'll have her prepared, thorough notes compiled. He'll be so invigorated by this new specimen. He'll be so pleased with your work. He won't accuse you of looming when you peer over his shoulder at his tidy cuts. You're so lost in your daydream, you forget about your prank on the new man, whose name you did not ask. Ah, what a waste of a good rotter. You nod your forehead at the putrid woman in the back, but this you say aloud. You have a habit of striking up conversation only with the freshest corpses, the ones that seem most eager to listen. So you know she's a good one, this new lady on the slab. You get to work quickly. Where once your fingers trembled in fear, they now only shiver in anticipation. Working nights has its perks after all. Plenty of time to work and study, and no one around to hurry, no clamoring crowds. Her dress, buttoned up to the neck, is matted with mud. The banks of the Seine work quickly to entomb the dead, and she is well encased. While you undress her, you think, How can dead women be so heavy? The live ones must have some inner bounce to them, or how else is anyone getting their knickers down for any fun? You're sure this must be so, but I've never been with a lady, you say. You're too young. Well, that depends on who you ask. Doc says, no, you're too old not to have wet your wick. Drip, drip, drip. With her clothing heaped for the morning laundress, you set to work with clean water to wash. You've a notebook off to the side to annotate anything you see. The doctor likes that you do that. You write down everything you find, usually bruising, sometimes a broken bone. Occasionally there's a stab wound, or someone died with a possession locked in an iron grip. You never note any money you find in their pockets. If someone is senseless enough to die with their purse, if someone is crazed enough to murder without stealing, it only makes sense that the money ought to go to you. You note nothing. She is clean, unblemished. Still soft to the touch, though cold. The water has not saturated her into bloating. She's so pristine you imagine she might sit up at any moment. And then you clean her face. Oh, God. The mass of mud and hair a crime scene unto itself, but beneath, bless, she is whole. More than that, she is beautiful. The face is the only time you let yourself look, really look, for a bit of humanity within a corpse. Here it is, lad. Humanity locked in death. Drip. Locked in quiet. Drip. Locked in bliss. The woman, no, the girl, she cannot be older than you, a year or two, one way or the other. Lord, will she draw a crowd being that young, looking like that. You are struck by the crushing urge to cover this girl. You nearly slip in the puddle of the sen you've washed from her. The morgue has cloth to cover the unseemly bits. You do, but 
that's not enough. Look at her smile. You brush away a clinging hair, and right there, in the quirked corners of her full lips, there is a smile. You've never seen the dead look pleased with their state. You've seen a few come in looking distinctly terrified, but she's lying in the morgue, smiling as if she were only out for a summertime swim, like she might open her eyes at any moment and laugh a bell-chime giggle at you for staring so long. Drip, your eyes are wet. Now she looks as if she has one single tear streaking down her cheek. You curse. You apologize for your language. Then you scurry off to get the water running. You should have done it sooner. The steady dripping of cold water is what keeps bodies fresher, longer. There are minutes of your time with her lost because you let her rot while you dallied. The thought consumes you. Drip. Drip. You check her face often to see if so long out of the river is already forcing the expression away. Soon her smile will slide off her skull with so much skin. Supple now, but for how long? They'll leave her out until she's mad with death. They'll dress her up, sit her in the display chair, press her as close as the glass will allow, and she will fall into malice. That which turned her smile up will pull her down beneath the laughter of every passing fool. And what if her eyes fall open and she sees them gawking? If you wait until morning... The doctor's death mask will only capture her face's laxity. Then, she'll be a drowned woman. You return to the girl with the plaster. I've never done this before, you say. She lies beneath you and smiles. Thank God you were here for her. Please, God, let this go well. Oh, God, what are you doing? You tidy her hair like you've seen your mother do. You think the girl will like this. You cover her in grease, tender little pets across flower petal skin. Do not wake and see that you are dead, you whisper, so quiet. She looks so pleased, you know, you know she is on the precipice, alive and happy within her closed eyes until she falls and realizes she is dead. Laying the plaster strips across her face feels very much like tucking the girl into bed or dressing her in armor. While you work, you sing a children's song you didn't know you remembered. It's about a long sea journey. When the food on the ship runs out, a child draws the short straw and they're all going to eat him. He is saved when the fish begin to jump onto the ship. They fry them up and the song begins again. When you are quiet, your song is taken up by the drip, drip, drip. You wait for the plaster to dry and think that this small stream of water on her body may be the last thread keeping her floating blissfully in the sun. When I take off the mask, you lean close to her. Your face will move. Your eyes will flutter open just a bit and your smile will fall. I want to tell you, before you wake up, before you realize that you're dead, before everyone comes to gawk at your deadness, 
Before they say you have no name and yours goes missing and no one names you, I just want to tell you, I think you were very loved. You press your lips to the plaster where you think her lips may be. The plaster presses down on the drowned girl. It moves her smile. You cannot see, but the right corner quirks up just a little bit more within the cast. You do not speak. You do not sing. You sit and wait. And when it is dry, you remove the mask to see that the drowned girl is dead. You tuck her in with the two flimsy sheets of the morgue. She does not smile at you when you go. She is gone, the last of her living, trapped in a death mask between the press of two lips. She smiles less and less each day until there are no more days. Drip. One night, they take her rotten body away. Drip. The next morning, there is a new drowned girl at the morgue. Drip. I think this is one of my favorite stories that I've written for the podcast of late. I, I'm not surprised by that at all, and I love this one. The, the big thing that really sticks out to me is the tone of voice that you used to tell this story because it is a dark story and the tone is so soft and so gentle compared to what the subject matter is. This story does a lot of things that I like to see in media. And actually, I cried when I wrote this story. Really? Which is interesting. Uh, I, yeah, I... What part really s- struck you? When the boy says to the the dead girl that she was so loved. Yeah. The thing that's happening here that I really like, that I liked in writing it, I should say, one, we're talking about time again and like decay, and two, we're talking about death, so it has two hallmarks of a Rowan story. And we love it. <laughs> Genuinely, I do love it. No food and family rituals here, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) But this story also has someone who I think is experiencing grief in a very unique way. Because seeing death, being around death makes people behave very oddly. Yes. And he does something that is very weird and kind of scary and unsettling because of it. You know, he makes this death mask and then he kisses it. And when I watch movies or read books where the author has captured that behavior where you're like, God, that is so weird. It's just weird to do. Right. But it is still beautiful and it still feels intensely human. And yes, I suppose you could sit back and judge it, but also I don't think it needs judgment. I I don't think that this boy is hurting anyone. The exploration of grief and the way that we experience it in a completely irrational and nonsensical way is so poignant in the story. It's exactly like you said. He does something that might even shock him, that might feel 
strange and unusual and out of character for him. I mean, I've in my own life, when experiencing strong emotions or grief, you just don't always know how you're going to react. And to take away the judgment from those reactions is so important. And I love that this story doesn't put a judgment on him. It just matter-of-factly shares the experience that he has. Thank you. That's what I was going for. (laughs) And you did it great. Thanks. Yeah, I'm very interested in grief. And I, the longer I live, the more that I am trying to not pass judgments when I'm able to, because I will judge the world. Uh, And I don't necessarily mean judging and scolding. I mean, make judgments. Mm -hmm. I go around the world and make value judgments or make you know, is this good for me? Is what this person doing wrong? You know, you you have a myriad of opportunities to pass judgment on any given day. And I find that the more I work on observing rather than judging, and as often as I can, even extending that to saying this thing doesn't need a judgment, Mm -hmm. the more contented I am. Yes, it's something I'm working on. Uh, My therapist won't let me say good or bad. Oh, because those are judgment words. So she'll call out if I say that of like, oh, I did this and it was really good. She'll say, why? Dig into that. That's a value statement. Why did you put that value on it? Which is great. I adore her and she always makes me laugh when she does it. But that was really eye-opening for me because I do pass unintentional judgment on so many things by just labeling them good or bad or and digging into why I think it is good changes it into, well, it's good because it was effective. Oh, so it's mm. just effective, and the effective is less of a judgment. Just to be clear, I was not extending this grace to myself. <laughs> <laughs> Don't be absurd. Oh, no. Why would we ever? <laughs> <laughs> All right. My last muse story. My last muse. That that feels really final. It certainly won't be my last, and it's cer- I've certainly written more than four. Um, <laughs> but my last one for today is... I feel like this is going to feel out of left field to some people, but it is from episode 86 when I covered unicorns. Mm -hmm. We're doing it. Let's dive in. Let's jump in. (laughs) Once upon a time, when the grass was green and the sky was blue, when the air was clear and the sun was bright, there were animals that roamed the earth. And among these rabbits and cats and lizards and fish, there was one animal most mythical of all. The unicorn. Tall as any steed ever has been, white as the freshest styrofoam, strong as the cleverest encryption, this was the ruler of the animal kingdom. To look upon a unicorn was to believe in all of the possibilities of the universe. For all its wonder, a unicorn is possessed of all the other parts that such an animal might need— Four wide hooves to stamp the dirt and gallop at incredible speeds, a long tail of silken hair to wave in the wind, a mane for holding, and a wide back on which to ride. That's just a horse. Don't say just. You've never seen a horse. You've never seen someone who's seen someone who's seen a horse. There is no just. The boy looked up at me with such stubbornness I almost wanted to agree simply to reward his pluck. But that was not the point of these stories, so I ruffled his hair and continued with the tale. 
It's not just a horse, it's a unicorn. There's that fearsome horn protruding from his head, a twisting braid of bone. It can terrify the most villainous of men, gore the fiercest opponent. The mere dip of its point into a river will purify the water for ten generations. No poison, no bacteria, no virus can survive the touch of a unicorn. That's not possible. Medicine isn't actually made from horns, and horses have been domesticated for over 6,000 years. It would be absurd for them to evolve a defense mechanism to use on the species that they rely on for food. I blinked at the little boy. He was at the age when every child wants so badly to understand the world, to have it neatly defined and participate in the definition. I'd known him since he was born. All the children on this floor were permitted to scurry from room to room, roughly two dozen adults looking after them. Each room a family, each floor a commune, each building a town. How else was a young child to have enough room to get out their energy if we didn't open our doors for them to boomerang in and out of the small compartments? Save your knowledge of horses. This is a unicorn, unbridled and unburdened by man, champion of nature, ruler among the trees. Yes, trees. Wild trees growing wherever they will, no neat, tidy rows here. The adventure for the unicorn is a perilous one, filled with turmoil within and without. Only the bravest of heroes will seek out this most mythical of monsters. For millennia, rulers have sought their power. Even just their image once struck fear into the hearts of enemies. To find a unicorn, you must adventure out into the woods. Here the trees grow high and low, dozens of varieties together, fallen and rotting with leaves and brambles underfoot. And there isn't a path in sight. There's never been pavement here. You must venture out into the dark night. Not the dark of the city, the darkness that knows no light but the stars and the moon. Those celestial orbs are as crisp as animation, gleaming down and transforming the messy world of the growing forest into glimmering black and white. Here there is no guide, no map, no blue line to lead the way. No one who's made the journey can tell you exactly how you'll get there. The forest is the place where there are no people and there never have been. No signs, no rules, no streets, no school or city limits. You'll know you're there before you see the unicorn. One day, you will slow down. You'll put away the music and the screens, and if you wait long enough in the silence, the magic will come, and you'll slip right through your normal life into the woods. What is magic? Magic is... Here I paused. I'd never met a child that didn't know what magic was. Magic is the world before science. It's conception, people, ideas, inventions born unpredictably into the world to grow wildly into their own. You could be born, live, and die, transforming all the while into someone else from one day to the next. Magic is... Mystery and privacy, the opportunity to guess and come up wrong, to try again and fail and fail and try again still, to live a life unblemished and undefined by any productivity or title. He looked at me baffled. I'd said too many nonsensical phrases to him, concepts he had no way of understanding, but to his credit, he hung in with me. 
I tried again. Magic looks like the beauty in something someone else said was ugly. Mismatched freckles, big noses, crooked grins, light across murky water. Making something for the first time with a real pen on real paper. Magic sounds like... Mm, well, magic spells are when someone says something brave or new to themselves. They're especially powerful if the magician can say the brave thing in front of people who disagree. And magic feels like being happy even when it's hard. Or stronger yet, the feeling of contentment when you want for nothing new. And you like who you are even when the ads say differently. When you've found magic and practiced and gotten good enough at doing it, you'll enter the woods easily to begin your search for the unicorn. This beast, shimmering like mercury and clever, so clever you wouldn't believe, will run away always in your periphery. The thing you need to understand about unicorns, boy, is that you never really want to catch one. What would you do if you did? Lock it up and tame the beast? No, the unicorn is the heart of magic, the ever forward, ever better. You must hunt it, keep it always in sight, and in your hunting, keep the unicorn just out of reach. Now I'd gone too far. I could feel the boy's frustration rolling off him in waves. This was not the sort of story he'd hoped for, no gory triumph, no hero's journey. Unicorns don't exist. They aren't real. For a magical thing to be real, it doesn't need to exist for anyone else but you. He made a face at me that he would continue to make for weeks to come. Every time he saw me, he scrunched his nose and messed up his chin and rattled off a series of excuses about the long history of horse domestication that he'd searched online. I didn't mind. I just let him fuss. I caught him a few times, small little boy that he was, hidden away in a room alone, sitting in dark silence, with no screen prattling or media droning. He would sit and stare out the window, or even at a wall unmoving. I saw him once, with paper in hand, which must have cost a fortune. And within the week, he'd slid a picture under my door. Long slashes of ballpoint pen mixed with fluffy scribbles of all sizes. A mess, his drawing, with no neat rows or order. He'd drawn the woods. And there, in the back, created from what wasn't colored, a distant unicorn. He never asked me for another tale, but as he grew over the years, I watched a stillness bloom in him that his peers could not understand. He certainly didn't notice it. My young friend went away to school in a different part of the city. He got a job, came back to the building, moved to a floor of his own, filled with his own crowd of children. He paid me a visit when he returned, all tall and proud. But then I didn't see him again for so long that I stopped wondering how he was— my day-to-day -day was filled with working, until it wasn't, and then it was seeing doctors, and all the while there were new little ones that families brought to the minuscule rooms of the floor. He came back again, late one evening, as a knock on my door, not as tall as I last remembered him, a bit grey at the temples even, with smile lines around his eyes that made me happy to see. "'I've been to the woods,' he said." So another child invited him in, 
I can't believe he needed to be told. When someone's drawing hangs on your refrigerator for decades, covering up that very large screen, they shouldn't need an invitation back home. But the new little scamp led him to my bedside, and he pulled up a chair to sit with me a while. I've been to the woods, and I go often. I understand now what you mean about the unicorn. Then he told me about his life. The messiness of growing up, the grander mess of thinking you've done all your growing. He told me about the difficulty of finding love and having a rebellious daughter, about daily anguish and how hard it was just to live. But he also told me about magic, about the messiness of growing up and that great big mess of always growing. He told me about his wife and how he loved her bedhead, about how fun it was to teach his daughter even the most mundane new things, the time he stood up to his boss, how much he loved washing dishes by hand, and the way distant sunlight turned the city smog into a jewel box. Then he leaned into me and whispered, I found the unicorn, tall as any steed ever has been, white as the freshest styrofoam, strong as the cleverest encryption, the ruler of the animal kingdom. You were right. To look upon a unicorn is to believe in all the possibilities of the universe. I have said magic spells and protected magic mysteries. I have tried and failed and kept on trying, and I taught my daughter how to find the woods. He smiled at me for a long time, holding my weak and knobby hand. He wiped spittle from my face and brushed lank white hair from my eyes. He gestured for the new child to come over and sit by us. Then the boy, who was now a man, looked at me with the same mischievous grin I once gave him. Then he began the story, Once upon a time. When the grass was green and the sky was blue, when the air was clear and the sun was bright, there were animals that roamed the earth. And among these rabbits and cats and lizards and fish, there was one animal most mythical of all, the unicorn. For this story... The, well, one, you know, talks about time. We love talking about time. What was so cool to me about this story is that you don't explicitly put it into any time or space, but you very clearly make it not now and make it a reality that is different from ours without hitting you over the head with it and making that the focal point of the story. I wouldn't call this a sci-fi story or a fantasy story or anything like that, but it's it has that sense of unreality that you do so well while then grounding it into something that is consumable. And the way that you describe magic in this tale and how you would tell it to someone you know that's a child and realizing that they don't understand it because you just used a lot of big nonsense words has stuck with me since the first time I heard you read the story. I'm really interested in how fairy tales would look in a dystopian world. And I think this podcast is an experiment in that because yeah. it does feel a bit dystopian right now. 
and forevermore, perhaps. Yeah. <laughs> the line that solidified where this story was for me in writing it was describing the unicorn's coat as being as white as the freshest styrofoam. Yeah. Which somehow, in my mind, expresses that there is not a more natural option for likening it to. Like, you're not going to say white as a daisy. White as the freshest snow if you don't exactly. have that kind of weather. Right. Uh, and also, the idea that styrofoam could be fresh at all means that there's something going on with reusing things. That's what I love about the story are these tiny implications of a broader universe that I want to see. It's so brilliantly done. And I suppose it's possible because I was this story was not super direct, but this I think maybe some people might have heard the story and, and not thought that it was talking about a muse and kind of creating a fictitious muse or creativity or imagination to go after and then ex saying but it's important that you never catch it because you're making this thing to be ever distant ever future goodness and then also being in a a dystopia where you have to reach very far back into a shared legacy of storytelling to find the idea of a unicorn feels a lot like what we do. You know, we're always reaching back into different mythologies and stories and saying, well, this is where it started and this is where it went and this is how people are telling it now to then take that unicorn to someone who's never even seen a horse. Mm. And you could then say in your version of the story, there are spaceships, they're on a different planet, there are no animals left. You know, you could keep going, but that doesn't necessarily mean that a mythology dies. Right, right. The I, that's, that's so true. That's something you don't see as much, the old and ancient idea of mythology and something that has long since gone but continued forward, brought into a futuristic setting and talked about you know, when you think of futuristic settings, you think of them saying, here's this ancient song from the olden days, and then they play Toxic by Britney Spears. And you're like, okay, what a funny gag, ha ha ha. But what would it look like to bring ancient mythology into the far distant future? Though I don't have a great explanation for why hearing this story again now reminds me a little bit of what I think about when I read Gideon the Ninth mm. and the books in that series. And this, this doesn't spoil anything. It's just the way that Tamsin Muir writes and includes so many details that are, are clearly f from lore as it exists in the book. You have an understanding that there is a common mythology mm -hmm. in the book. Yes. And she does the same thing that you do here, which is to include such minor details that are spoken of as though it's an everyday statement. But the words in it are a little bit unusual. So in those, it's the idea of paper is so rare. It was written on real paper. That kind of thing where you're like, well, what happened to paper? Mm -hmm. That's a different world than we have. And you do that in this story so well where you touch on different, different elements that clearly set it apart from our world and give you just enough to understand it but leave you wanting to know more about the world. Mm-hmm. Thank, thank you. That's how I, I'm. I'm humming when you're evaluating my writing, but I'm humming because that's what I experience in writing it. It's so often. It's so wild talking about these because 
I don't know about you, but I'm sitting around thinking about my experience writing it and I cannot have an experience consuming it because I can only consume it as the creator. Yes. And it's such a different feeling. And it's so, for me, hard to be objective when I'm in that position. So I love getting to be in this position and tell you all the things that I find really fascinating. And it's different when we're consuming an entire episode we've written because there's also research which we can evaluate on a, such a different scale. You know, is it First of all, is it true? Mm -hmm. uh, are our sources accurate to the best of our knowledge? Is it clearly expressed? Is it well analyzed? Is it quoted efficiently? Like there are so many clear metrics right. that when we only consume the creative writing. Now, I hate to say like the world is your oyster, but we could talk about anything <laughs> and grade it on any scale. Absolutely. And that does make it um, I don't know, maybe more intimidating, but also more fun, more free. Like It's freeing. And it's really inspiring. You know, we talked about this episode being about muses, but it's really inspiring for me as we enter season four to take the time this season to really push myself out of my comfort zone and tell stories in a way I haven't and mm -hmm. explore concepts that I haven't allowed myself to dive into. So thank you for doing all these stories about muses only for me and just for me. So also, to be clear, this episode, I chose Unicorns partially for a selfish reason, which is that I wanted to re-record it, uh, which we don't do no. on this podcast. But we covered this episode when I was homeless because of my ex during a very difficult time. And the audio quality is not as good as I feel like this story deserves or maybe any story. I just want our audio quality to be good. Yeah, it meant a lot to you to get a chance to revisit this episode. I know that was something you'd been talking about doing and wanting to find a way to do, not just for the audio recording, which was a big draw for you, but also to revisit a story that you created at a time of such turmoil in your life. Yeah, it's it's funny because I didn't sit down and write this story. There's not like some secret message or like deeper catharsis about what I was going through at the time, really at all <laughs> in that writing. But it did exist at that time. Mm -hmm. I wrote it then. So it came from somewhere. And perhaps someone who is not me could observe better how my life impacted the writing. But I'm glad to have the opportunity to Make the audio better. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm happy for you that you got that chance. And next time I get to hear a compilation of all of your greatest hits. Greatest wow. hits. <laughs> <laughs> Just touch on some of my greatest hits. <laughs> but before we do that, Rowan, it is your turn to tell me something good. My something good this week is rediscovering a local coffee shop, which sounds wild because you all know that Tracy and I love to go out to a little cafe, mm -hmm. but I have such a wonderful space to work in my own home that uh, in the last little bit, I, I tended to be a bit of a shut-in. And so I started going out to a local cafe where there's some outdoor seating to just get work done. It's so beautiful. I love that. I want to do that with you. It is genuinely 12 degrees here today, so I can't really sit outside. And so please send me pictures of you sitting outside at your coffee shop working so that I can just pretend I'm sitting there with you. Well, don't worry. It'll get too hot soon, and then you'll be in tepid, beautiful weather. 
but it, you know, it's, it's, it's not a chain. Well, I guess it's a chain in that there are more than one location of this coffee shop, but it's not mm-hmm. a Starbucks, I should say. Right. So it is nice to go there and there, there's kind of a usual cast of people. That's, a, that's amazing. What is your go-to order? Oh, come on. Uh, you know it's got to be either a matcha or a chai. At this location, I like to do chai because they make their own. Oh, that's always so good. And so the chai is as dark as a cup of coffee almost because it's so herbaceous and good. I bet it's so flavorful. That sounds amazing. It's amazing. But they also do a matcha that's sweetened with honey instead of sugar. Mm-hmm. We love it there. That, this place was made for me. <laughs> okay, well, another item on our list for me to go see when I come out there. Amazing. Uh, in the meantime, Tracy, tell me something good. My something good is that I am in my second training class with my dog, Malcolm. He is doing... Big boy. He's a big boy, 85 pounds. What kind of dog is he? He's half Great Pyrenees, half Bernese Mountain Dog. That's a big boy. <laughs> I love him so much. He is the goofiest goofiest dog. Um, such a silly little boy. He'll be two in April. So we finished our first training class at the end of last year. And then we signed up for what is called a nose work class. So they have to solve problems kind of and find different scented items. So we're using uh, boiled chicken in this class and they'll put it in a cup that they have to tip over that's hanging from something or um, hide it under a puzzle toy or they have to walk through a tunnel that they have to get exposed to and get comfortable with and all these different things that they have to problem solve while then also using their nose which is very instinctual the coolest part is that the only two people who signed up for the class are my sister and i so <laughs> <laughs> because it wasn't really advertised it's through uh, a local boarding and daycare. And the trainer is incredible. She's brilliant. She worked uh, with dogs who worked at 9-11. She's trained cadaver oh, dogs. Wow. She has trained um, professional agility animals. I mean, she's incredible. Brilliant. So we kind of get this private time with her where she's not only working on the scent work with us, but she's also working with us on our individual animals and how to train them and what to do with them and helping me figure out if I can get Malcolm to be a therapy dog and what we need to do to get him to the point where he can go to senior living facilities and hospitals and have a good time there while also providing a good time for the residents there. So I'm just really enjoying that I get to experience this. And I'm very grateful that no one else happened to sign up for this class because I get kind of personalized training and Malcolm gets so excited. He genuinely runs in like cartoon dog circles when he realizes we're going to go into the class. He loves it so much. I love that you're doing that. A, because it's so cool that you're even considering all of the training that it takes to make a dog a therapy dog that can go into actual facilities Mm -hmm. and care for people effectively in that not just any dog can go around people who are vulnerable physically Mm -hmm. or in health conditions, but also so many people do not take the time and energy to train their dogs. And it is for the health of the dog that they be well-trained. Yes. And that they know to come back to you and that they know how to behave in public settings where you can't control everything that's out there. Yes, absolutely. It is. That's something we're working on a lot in the class is keeping not just yourself safe, but your dog safe. And that's you hit the nail on the head. A lot of these commands, a lot of this interaction is about the safety of the dog. But the other big part that you don't really 
understand until you're doing it is the emotional connection it builds between you and your animal. You're developing mm-hmm. a way of communicating. You're watching them be presented with a problem and you're seeing the joy that they experience when they solve it. It, it is so it is such a unique experience and it's such a fun experience. So my something good is getting to just continue to grow with my dog and go to these training classes and work with him and hopefully eventually someday get him to the point where I can start bringing him out in public to events. But we got a lot to work on. He's still a young pup with a lot of energy and some impulse control things that that's the main thing we're working on. He's also so smart. When animals and people are really smart, you got to work out their brain. Yes. Gotta let him use it. (laughs) I could walk this dog for 16 miles in one direction and 16 miles back the other direction and he'd be like, what's next? But doing an hour of nose work where he has to solve problems, he sleeps for the rest of the day. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Thank you for joining my Muse episode. Thank you for sharing your stories with us, Rowan. And thank you, listeners, for joining us. And remember that stories grow with the telling. So if you like what we do, Tell a friend. Or tell a foe. And we'll see you soon, okay? Thank you so much for joining us for the Willing and Fable podcast. This episode was written and produced by Tracy Harrison and Rowan Hall. That's me. Our logo is by Jamie Harrison, and our music is by Taylor Ash. If you ever want to watch or read what we're reading, head over to willingandfable.com for our show notes and custom merch, or find us at Willing and Fable on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok to join the discussion. We hope you'll rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast using your favorite listening source. And check out Willing and Fable on Patreon, where we have more than a few surprises for you, including custom artwork, stories, and access to our secret Discord channel. And of course, Join us next time for another round of original retellings and in-depth research on the history, mystery, and mythology that makes the world so fascinating.